Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. Welcome back, I hope you've had a delightful beginning to the year. This will be my first new recording of 2021. This installment will be, as promised, about the colonial West Indies. In addition, I will repost the introductory episode of another new podcast, as if we need more, that my friend and I have launched called God Save America about religion and the religious makeup of the United States, the different religious groups, where they come from, how they work. So I will post the link to that. If you have not seen it, please uh, see if you like it. But this will be a regular installment, as I said, on the colonial West Indies, and it's going to focus on the early period, basically the 15 and 1600s, when the world that we think of today as the Caribbean, the sort of images, connotations, the types of societies that we associate with the Caribbean came into being. And I'm, I'll try to account for how it happened that a whole island chain and the land masses around it that were for a long time very sparsely populated, many of them even totally uninhabited, instead became among the densest, busiest, richest, most productive and also most violent and most oppressive societies in the world at that time. So this is a really tremendous and significant transformation that happened in that part of the world that affected the entire global economy and society around it. And that happened, you know, comparatively pretty quickly, mainly just over the course of the 1600s. And then maybe later I'll talk about what became of this world in after 1700. But basically, just to work through a few definitions, Caribbean is, of course, the name of a sea. And it can be used in a very broad and ambiguous way to refer to all the land masses around that basin on the islands and the mainland. Not only the, the West Indies, the West Indian islands, but also parts of South America, Central America, and so on. What I'm going to focus on now is, is not that sort of larger Caribbean basin, which in some ways really only comes together as a social and political unit later, I'm going to focus on the island chain that can roughly loosely be called the West Indies. And the West Indies can be broken into several smaller groups, smaller chains and archipelagos that have different geographies and different characters. So Firstly, we can distinguish, when we talk about the West Indies, we can distinguish between the Greater Antilles and the Lesser Antilles. And Antilles is another just European term for faraway land. It's related to the word Atlantis that they would just apply, similarly to Indies, they would just apply to sort of faraway, mostly tropical, warm climate lands and islands that they didn't know about. 
So this same word is also sometimes then used in reference to the West Indies. So we can split them roughly into Greater Antilles and Lesser Antilles. And the Greater Antilles are the bigger islands that are further west, closer to the mainland of the Americas. And namely, those are Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and Jamaica. So those are your Greater Antilles. And then there are all sorts of Lesser Antilles that stretch to the north, east, and south of the Greater Antilles. But most of the rest of the island chain extends in a sort of gently curving arc eastward and southward down around the eastern end of the Caribbean Sea. And those lesser Antilles can be further divided into two main groups, the Leeward Islands and the Windward Islands. So in this belt of the tropics, the prevailing winds blow from east to west. So it's the reverse of what we might be accustomed to in, in the jet stream in North America. In the Caribbean, they blow from east to west, and sailing and navigation were so foundational to the creation and the shape of these societies that that's the main measure that they use of location and direction. More so than northeast, west, south, they talk about upwind and downwind. And basically being further to the east or the southeast puts you upwind. That's where the prevailing winds are coming from. And then being the other way to the west or northwest puts you downwind. And so people distinguished when they were talking about the Lesser Antilles, they distinguished between windward islands, places like Barbados, Trinidad, Grenada, St. Vincent, and so on as windward islands. And then as you move north westward, you get to the leeward islands like Antigua and Barbuda and St. Kitts and the Virgin Islands. Those are all leeward. And then there are some in between like Martinique and Dominica that are kind of on the edge. That's sort of the rough boundary between leeward islands and windward islands. And again, that's not because the windward islands are windier. It's just that they are, they're upwind. They're in the direction the wind is coming from. And even when you look at individual islands, such as, for example, Guadeloupe, the same terminology is applied. So in Guadeloupe, you have two sort of main land masses joined together. One is called Grande Terre or high ground, and the other is Basse Terre or low ground. And actually, Basse Terre is higher in elevation. It has higher mountains, but it's called the low ground because it's downwind and Grande Terre is upwind. So this is the basic kind of division and ordering that people use to talk about the different islands. There are then also additional islands to the north and to the south that can also be loosely considered part of the West Indies. So on the southern side of the Caribbean, closer to South America, you have islands like uh, Aruba and Curaçao that are now part of the Netherlands Antilles, uh, and those can be considered part of the West Indies. And then also to the north, as you go north of Cuba, there's the Bahama Islands, the Turks and Caicos Islands, and even you can go up into the middle of the Atlantic to Bermuda and see Bermuda as loosely speaking sort of part of uh, the West Indies, although some technically do not consider it part of the West Indies. It was, as comes up at one point in Jane Austen's novel, Persuasion, you know, we do not customarily call the Bermudas the West Indies. But basically, you have this sort of long 
stretch of different clusters and chains of islands that we loosely call the West Indies. And as for the geography of these islands, the Greater Antilles are mountainous. Some have very high mountains. As for the Lesser Antilles, some are more mountainous and some are not. Some are flat, low-lying islands of coral and limestone. So there's sometimes a a dramatic difference in that way between, say, a low-lying flat island like Barbados as opposed to a high mountainous island like, for instance, Dominica. And the, the different geographies can be very important in how these different societies evolve. And some of the islands are volcanic. That's why they lie in this chain kind of running around the Caribbean Sea. They were created by volcanic and seismic activity. Some of them are still seismically active. There's an active volcano on Montserrat in the Leeward Islands. There are earthquakes. There was a recent earthquake in Haiti. Also, uh, about 100 years ago, there was a really major impactful earthquake in Martinique. So these are seismically active lands, maybe not as much so as some places like Japan, but, but they are. So how did Caribbean society come about? Well, if we go back, I won't go into all the details of the Spanish period, but if we look at the state of society and the population at the time of Columbus's landings, we seem to have a fairly scattered population all around the islands whose size is unclear. There are widely varying estimates of exactly how many people might have lived in the islands around, say, 1490. But it does seem that most of the population of the West Indies was Taino. So they belonged to a sort of broad tribal confederation group that spoke a language in the Arawak family. So sometimes you'll see in older sources they'll refer to the people as Arawaks, and that's actually not correct. Arawak is the language or the language group that was spoken. The people were Taino. And the Arawak language group, most of it is spoken on the mainland of South America, so it seems possible that maybe the ancestors, the progenitors of the Taino people, migrated into the islands from South America. And, you know, it was broadly speaking a fairly civilized, peaceful society with many commonalities and many contacts and relationships with mainland Mexico, Mesoamerica, and South America. However, by the late 1400s, there also was a new group rapidly invading the Caribbean, and those were the Caribs, and that's where our word Caribbean comes from, the Sea of the Carib people. So that shows you how powerful they'd really already become pretty quickly before Europeans came onto the scene. The Caribs traveled in large seagoing canoes, so they could move quickly and attack and land quickly from island to island. And that gave them a tremendous advantage in the West Indies. In some ways, you could see them as kind of comparable to Vikings, sort of attacking and raiding Taino towns and settlements, sometimes depopulating them, taking people prisoner, and then starting to colonize and create their own settlements on these islands as they advance from one land to the next. And... In some places, they particularly, they would kill or drive off the men, but take women captive. 
and hence you had a sort of odd hybrid population in some islands like Martinique where there was kind of a Carib ruling class and then a subordinate class of mostly women who were mostly of Taino ancestry. So there was a weird kind of linguistic admixture where Taino societies would speak an Arawakan language, the Caribs would speak Carib, and then you had this sort of women's language that was much more Arawak-influenced and was kind of a, a Creole hybrid. And this sort of Carib colonization of the islands, it seems, had already advanced all the way through the Windward Islands by the time. So they were they were apparently also coming up from South America, and they were island hopping northward. And they'd gotten through the Windward Islands and were attacking and colonizing much of the Leeward Islands. And it seems by 1500 or so, when Europeans showed up, some small Carib forward groups were starting to raid and set up small encampments on the Greater Antilles, in particularly in Puerto Rico and Cuba. So they were, you could say, on their way to maybe taking over the entire island chain. But this was interrupted. We don't know what would have happened, but it was interrupted by the appearance of Europeans. So if we talk about this early period of colonization from the time of Columbus up to 1620, this is a time of Spanish invasion, uh, raiding, and colonization. And I'm not going to get into all the gross details of that. I talked about aspects of that in my lecture about Columbus. I talked about that some in my lecture about Spanish and Portuguese expansion. So I won't go through all of that again, but just it's important to know in short, the Spanish incursions led to massive depopulation. And this was because of, for one thing, violence, the attacks and killing particularly of leaders and elites of the Taino nation. Also, probably most of all, disease epidemics, epidemics of contagious crowd diseases like smallpox that had never been encountered before in the Americas, and which led to just repeated devastating outbreaks that would cut down the populations of these societies over and over again for decades. Also, enslavement, the taking of captives, especially Taino. And, you know, it's, it's important to remember here, there, was, there were real differences in terms of the customs and the habits of the Taino and the Caribs. And the Taino tended to be more peaceable, whereas the Caribs were more warlike, just broadly speaking. And particularly the Carib groups that were invading the Caribbean were the most aggressive kind of war parties. So you tended to see the Spanish kind of holding off and trying to avoid encounters with Carib people when not necessary, whereas they would very often attack and take away whole societies of Tainos to put to work as forced laborers, either in their colonies in the Americas or back in Europe. And finally, just the ecological disruption, the fact that once these indigenous peoples were conquered and subjugated, they were forced to do work like, like mining or building uh, of colonial towns that took them away from the regular rhythm of farming and hunting that had sustained their populations. And this kind of disruption 
of their their habits and their uh, exploitation of the environment led to food shortages, which of course then only exacerbated the epidemics and so on. There was this kind of vicious cycle. And it seems that over the course of about 150 years or so, from the 1490s to the mid-1600s, the population of the Caribbean dropped by probably 90%, maybe even more. You know, it's it's unknown. And this was not just an instant, one fell swoop destruction. It was a cycle of collapse and loss over many decades. The Caribbean played a sort of odd and unusual role in the Spanish Empire and this massive new domain that the Spanish crown obtained in the Americas. In some ways, the Caribbean was extremely convenient and useful because it was close to Europe. The navigation time is shorter, so it made for a convenient sort of way station and stopping point for colonization and conquest and control of America. And it did have harbors and defensible points, but the fact that its population was small, it was always small in comparison to the great empires of Mexico and Peru, and it was further decimated, this at the same time made it less appealing to the Spanish. And Spain had to put in a great deal of resources that were quite precious, a lot of money and a lot of labor, which was a limited resource, into setting up kind of small fortified outposts in the Caribbean. And the first of these that stuck was Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola in the Greater Antilles, which was founded in 1496. And it was followed then by other sort of fortified capital port towns on each of the other Greater Antilles. So Havana in Cuba, which was founded in 1515, uh, San Juan in Puerto Rico in 1521, and then a smaller town of Santiago de la Vega in Jamaica in 1525. So by that point, Spain was at least putting in some effort to hold and use these strategically positioned islands. But as I said, the indigenous populations were already fairly small, and there was no gold. There were no sources of gold at this time, and those were the main things that the Spanish were interested in, quite rationally, that they really needed in order to make their colonies in America profitable, was they needed people to do the work of mining and transport and shipbuilding and sailing, and they needed gold, the only reasonably accessible resource that was valuable enough in proportion to its weight to be worth shipping all the way back to Europe. And because the West Indies didn't provide these things, the Spanish really neglected them in general and showed much less interest in them than in the great territories on the mainland. And particularly the Lesser Antilles were really completely ignored. Some of them were briefly inhabited by Spanish colonizers. Some of them still had some remaining indigenous population. But some of them, such as Barbados, were just totally wiped out. The whatever remaining indigenous population died or emigrated to somewhere else where they could survive or were taken prisoner and sold into the slave trade. So it was really a remarkable kind of stripping of all society and civilization from some of those islands in the Lesser Antilles. And the only island that 
over the course of the 15 and early 1600s, the only island that the Spanish really put some time and effort into building up as a colony was Cuba. So Cuba was very strategically located. It had a bit more of a population that was mostly Taino, but was still small compared to the mainland colonies. Havana was located on a fairly good natural harbor close to the passageway connecting the Atlantic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico and hence to to the great colonies in Mesoamerica. And the population of the island declined from possibly around 2 million before the Spanish arrival to only about 80,000 in the 1600s. But Havana continued to be a significant, sizable town with a major busy harbor and some hinterlands of small villages and farms and ranches around Havana. And there were also several other smaller coastal towns, such as Matanzas and Santiago de Cuba, which could sort of hold their own and had some degree of prosperity and some hinterlands, again, with farms and villages around them. Then there was a massive interior territory, largely mountainous and hilly, that was severely depopulated, that was largely unknown and really out of the control of the Spanish. There were still some small native indigenous tribes around of Taino and Carib, but not very much. A few small trading outposts here and there, and some cattle ranches. So the the mountains and the uplands of the Greater Antilles are very good for animal herding, especially cattle. So there was some production of animal products like beef and hides and dairy, including even some for export. So there was a little bit of an export trade from Cuba. But again, it was important mainly as a base of transit for the launching of fleets for conquest, for trade and communication, and Havana became really the main center of administration, connecting the colonial regimes with Spain. And eventually, it also became the staging ground for the treasure fleets, these massive guarded fleets that would transport the uh, royal share of gold and silver mined in America back across the ocean to Spain. As for the other Greater Antilles, they were broadly similar. You know, you had at least some sizable towns like Santo Domingo and San Juan, and then hinterlands that were very sparsely populated, largely out of Spanish control, but with some small villages and cattle ranches. And Jamaica was probably the most sparse at all, where really the only significant European settlement was Santiago de la Vega, which was tiny even as compared to Santo Domingo. So the Spanish approach to their colonies was mainly to try to extract value in the form of silver and gold, and then later also cash crops, by controlling indigenous labor. And that was very difficult and caused a lot of political problems, even on the mainland of America, where the indigenous population was bigger it really quickly became totally untenable in the West Indies, where the population was so wiped out. And so that's where the slow, gradual shift to exploitation of African captives began. So 
captive Africans to use as forced laborers first started coming into the Spanish West Indies, initially from Portuguese colonies in the Atlantic, like Cape Verde, and then also coastal colonies in Upper Guinea, and then later in Angola. And many of these African captives already knew at least some Portuguese They might be able to communicate with the Spanish colonizers through a sort of shared pidgin language. Some of them were already Roman Catholic, especially those coming from Angola. And some of them had skills, skills maybe in building or navigating or different kinds of farming. And because there was such a lack of people, there was a tremendous demand and tremendous premium for workers and especially for skilled workers who would be able to build up and maintain and expand these colonial societies. And by the mid-1500s, some of these African captive workers were starting to be put to work growing sugarcane. But that was not the main line of work. More of them had to learn and practice skilled crafts like carpentry or metalworking, or they had to learn ranching, which also is a complex skill unto itself. And because these African laborers and their skills were so important and so valuable, they actually had some degree of leverage and sometimes even power in these colonies. And one anthropologist named David Wheat has even put forward the argument that we should see these African workers, whether enslaved or free, as surrogate settlers who sort of stood in for Spain and the Spanish colonizers in trying to control and exploit the West Indian islands. And many of them actually became free. Some of them then could acquire land, uh, conduct trade, build up a certain degree of wealth, and could be fairly important and influential people in colonial society. There's a pattern of a lot of the trade in and out of these Spanish colonial towns being managed by African women, many of whom already had some experience in commerce in Africa or in the Portuguese colonies before they came to the Caribbean. There was a certain degree of so-called miscegenation or intermarriage and intermixture between the European, African, and indigenous populations, and they largely became Catholic. Those who were not already Roman Catholic, many of them were baptized and accepted into the Catholic Church, which the clergy actively encouraged. And even as most of them became Catholic, still many of them also carried on different African customs and practices, which they could blend in with Christian and and Roman Catholic practices. So this is more or less a rough picture of who was in the Spanish Caribbean colonies and how this society was working in the late 1500s and into the early 1600s. And that's the time when raids and small attacks by Northern Europeans really intensified. And sort of privateers or buccaneers of various backgrounds carried out these raids and attacks on the sort of vulnerable colonies in the Caribbean, but especially the English, that was most common. These privateers and buccaneers were encouraged by Queen Elizabeth, who was carrying on kind of an escalating Cold War with Spain, 
and saw a point of vulnerability because of the capabilities of, of English navigators and seafarers. And this sort of escalating Cold War really erupted in the 1580s and 90s at the end of Elizabeth's reign. And so many English privateers really became very aggressive and violent in their incursions into these Spanish islands. The most famous and successful of them was Francis Drake, who landed in these Caribbean islands and tried repeatedly to make alliances with the African laborers in these colonies, again, some of whom were enslaved and some free. But he actually did, on occasion, manage to get information or support from sort of disfranchised, dissatisfied African colonists. He sometimes actually took African Spanish colonists or slaves onto his ships and transported them to places where maybe they could be free or set up a colony of their own, like in Central America. And these raids and attacks, which really threatened not only the direct physical safety of the colonies, but really threatened their social structure and threatened to sort of destabilize the whole society. This led then to the building of El Moro, the massive fortress at the harbor of Havana, which was built over 10 years between 1587 and 97, right at the height of this kind of low-level background war between Spain and England. So this kind of raiding and low-level attacking, this had been going on for decades before then Northern Europeans began to really encroach and try to colonize or seize Spanish territory in the Caribbean. And this would really be the turning point where the Caribbean transformed into something dramatically different, more like what we think of today. So various Northern European countries saw opportunities in the Caribbean. They saw the advantages that the islands offered as strategic basis for trade and for further buccaneering, further attacks on the Spanish mainland colonies, or the Spanish Main, as the English called it. They saw that the islands had a hospitable climate, with very mild winters, uh, with good rainfall, and as territory that could be fertile ground for cash crops, especially tobacco, the crop that was making millions for the English in Virginia. These Northern European countries, especially England and the Netherlands, had superior naval capability. They had fast-moving and maneuverable ships, highly skilled, experienced mariners who had already been getting the better of larger Spanish forces like the Spanish Armada, they had good trade relations, particularly with the Portuguese, this maritime trading country that was able to supply important goods and necessities like seeds or horses across the ocean. And England in particular had a special trading alliance with Portugal. And with all of these resources, Northern Europeans figured that they could make very good use of the good harbors that exist all along the Caribbean island chains. Furthermore, the Northern European countries like England, the Netherlands, and France had a lot of middle-class investors, a sort of rising mercantile class that was interested in putting its money into kind of daring enterprises overseas. 
And some of them, especially England, again, had excess population to send. There were many vagrants, people who had been dispossessed or displaced by the enclosure movement, by rack renting and evictions, and poor houses were filling up all around the kingdom. And so there was this population of people that the state would be very happy to just load onto ships and send abroad into this colonizing project. So all in all, the, the Northern European countries saw many reasons to try to get into this dangerous business of trying to attack or colonize or seize Spanish territories in the Caribbean. But all of them applied to England most of all. England was the most obvious candidate. There also were many obstacles and dangers that held people back and made it very difficult and risky to colonize. There could be hostility and uh, reprisal by indigenous people, especially the Carib, who continued to live and try to expand and conquer in the Lesser Antilles. Or the Spanish. The Spanish could send away teams, fleets, conquistadores to counterattack and, and block northern European encroachment. Also hurricanes. Although it was generally a hospitable climate, the autumn could see enormous destructive hurricanes come off the Atlantic very quickly and with little warning. But most of all, the biggest danger and the biggest obstacle was disease. This was a very dangerous disease environment for anybody but especially for people who were not used to the tropical conditions and would often die of malaria or other mosquito-borne illnesses. So Europeans and Africans both experienced a terrible, severe death rate, especially in low-lying coastal areas near the seashore where you could easily uh, get you could easily get these tropical diseases in that hot tropical environment. So all of these things were deterrents and obstacles that, that discouraged successful colonization. But by the early 1600s, Northern Europeans, especially the English, were ready to try it anyway. And it was a very long, haphazard process of attempting to set up viable societies and outposts in the Antilles, it was a lot of it was two steps forward, one step back. But to basically go through the important developments of how Northern Europeans started to create footholds in the Caribbean. As I said, the first were the English. And really, you have to say the beginning of encroachment into the Caribbean began from Bermuda. So Bermuda is just a very small island chain of of sort of hilly limestone islands, basically in the middle of the Atlantic, close to what's today the Carolinas, but not too far also from the Bahamas and Cuba. And Bermuda, the English had known of Bermuda for many years, and technically it was included under the charter that the English crown granted to the Virginia Company. So the same set of people, the same set of investors and adventurers who were authorized to colonize the Chesapeake also could lay claim to Bermuda. And at that time, it was totally uninhabited. There were no colonists or indigenous people. No humans, as far as we know, had ever lived on Bermuda. 
In the year 1609, an English ship bound to Virginia, which included cargo and goods and administrators and also forced laborers, indentured servants, this ship called the Sea Venture crashed in a hurricane and happened to run aground right near Bermuda. And all the passengers were able to get ashore safely on Bermuda. And they began to set up a society there that could subsist and manage to feed itself in the environment of the islands. Now, this is not what the Virginia Company wanted. They wanted those people to proceed to Virginia, where they would do important labor in trying to build up this largely failing colony at Jamestown. And so not long after, a further fleet of ships was sent to sort of forcibly collect these people from Bermuda and send them on to Virginia. But three refused and were able to avoid (laughs) capture, basically, and remain on Bermuda. And so this was the first permanent human habitation, these three refuseniks who stayed in Bermuda. And eventually the Virginia Company recognized that it would be very much to their advantage to have a permanent way station in the ocean at Bermuda. So in 1612, they sent 60 families over who were able to more or less hang on and survive and begin subsisting on those islands. In 1616, the colonists who were trying to set up farms to both to support themselves and also produce cash crops to export, some of them began to obtain slaves who had been raided from other colonies, particularly that Dutch and Portuguese raiders had more or less stolen from the Spanish colonies and that they could claim, oh, we liberated them, but in fact they were just, you know, treating them as as merchandise to be stolen and resold somewhere else. And again, the Bermudan colonists really needed these enslaved people, particularly for their skills. And soon they had some success in growing tobacco. But as often happens, this didn't last for very long. Uh, Tobacco tends to exhaust the soil quickly, and there wasn't very much fertile land in Bermuda. And also there was competition. As Virginia and Maryland produced more, the prices dropped and tobacco became less profitable. And so Bermuda fairly quickly transitioned to becoming a sea base, really focused on the industries of shipping, shipbuilding and repairing. And they moved away from this attempt to make money on big plantation agriculture. And so Bermuda ended up becoming the main base and model, really, the first kind of blueprint for how Northern Europeans could encroach and create colonies using the skills of seafaring and shipbuilding, as well as enslaved African labor to expand into the Caribbean. So other English colonies followed down in the West Indies proper, and they tended to start with small temporary encampments that would serve just as bases for merchants and raiders and pirates of various sorts. But then those were followed by more kind of permanent, fortified settlements that tried to create a sustainable food supply and water supply for more colonists and expansion. 
So the first of these colonies was created in 1623 on the island of St. Christopher, which is now commonly called St. Kitts for short, in the Leeward Islands. And that was followed four years later by another colony on Barbados. So we're talking about the 1620s when, you know, just after the creation of Plymouth in New England, but still before the Great Migration to Massachusetts Bay. So basically at the same time that New England is becoming uh, a ground for English colonization, they're also moving down into the, the Lesser Antilles. So as I said, it starts with St. Kitts in the Leeward Islands, then Barbados, which is the farthest, you know, easternmost of the Windward Islands. And then St. Kitts ended up becoming sort of the main base for then further exploration and expansion into more islands in the Lesser Antilles. So a colony was created on Nevis nearby in 1628, then more on Antigua and Montserrat in the Leeward Islands in 1632, then Anguilla in 1650, and eventually Tortola in the Virgin Islands in 1672. So the English expanded into various bases in in the Leeward Islands, as well as Barbados. And these colonies were fairly rapidly populated. The companies that obtained charters in England were able to send large numbers of settlers, some of them going voluntarily, some of them coerced or forced as convicts or indentured laborers of various kinds. And these indentured servants were mainly English, but then as the century went on, increasingly Irish, uh, impoverished Irish peasants, Irish uh, convicts or captured rebels, and particularly the Irish population increased a lot in the 1650s during the wars between the Irish royalists and the Cromwell Puritan government, in which Cromwell just ordered the the capture and deportation of thousands of Irish resistors to the Caribbean. And, of course, it also early on involved the procurement of African captives, who were generally just called Negroes or Negro servants. It was not so clear yet what exactly was the legal and social status of these African people. They weren't necessarily called slaves. And so when you see these English, Irish, and African laborers kind of all thrown into the mix together, there sometimes were alliances and cooperation among them. There was sometimes resistance, work stoppages, and also particularly uh, marronage, what the French would call marronage, abandonment. Uh, This was in this early period when you had these small colonies being set up in this massive island chain, the most obvious thing to do if you didn't like the conditions you were being subject to was to simply run away. And there were, in most of these islands, there were still uninhabited hills or hinterlands that you could run away to. And you see some small maroon uh, maroon societies starting to spring up in these different islands. But others who did not run away and and become so-called maroons, some of them did still become free, they might acquire land, and they might uh, arise into the upper strata of society even. And as the 1600s went on, this became more difficult for people of African descent. There were more kind of restrictions in law and custom trying to discourage 
uh, Afro-Caribbean people from obtaining wealth and status. But there was somewhat more opportunity for the Irish. And in some places, the Irish more or less just took over. And the, the most dramatic example of that is Montserrat in the Leeward Islands, which became known as kind of the Irish island where basically all classes um, had some kind of Irish extraction and the Irish brogue, the sort of Irish version of English at that time, was the common spoken language. Uh, as for the, the African captives, some of them came from Africa and some from the Spanish or Portuguese colonies. And so they might, again, have already some experience in colonial life and industries and they were obtained initially mainly from Dutch traders, Dutch sort of merchants and like quasi-legal buccaneers and raiders. And then as time went on, more from English merchants themselves. And the English little by little started to uh, take over the Dutch control of the slave trade and to obtain captives and transport them directly from Africa. Now, although there were all these various small colonies around the Leeward Islands, Barbados in the Windward Islands really quickly rose to become the most prominent, most successful island and to sort of set more and more the model that the other islands would follow. So Barbados kind of displaced St. Kitts and Bermuda as the new forefront of English colonization. In Barbados... The company doled out land mainly in small plots, sort of just enough that various colonists, English, Irish, Portuguese, could support themselves and grow various crops to make some profit, especially tobacco and coffee early on were, were big ones. But between the 1640s and the 1690s, as the colony grew, the situation changed and sugar really became the main crop. So Barbados was the first site where the Portuguese system of sugar production, what we now call the sugar complex, was really imported and, and multiplied en masse. And so it's a system where you have laborers, usually mostly enslaved laborers, producing crops of sugar year-round, then pressing the sugar cane for juice, boiling down the juice, granulating the sugar, and producing this final refined sugar product that can then be easily exported for profit to mainly to Europe. So this was the first time that colonists in the Americas really came up with a crop basically as valuable as gold, something that could be procured and shipped that was so high value in proportion to its size and its weight that it made the risk of transatlantic shipping worth it. So there was a tremendous sugar boom in Barbados. For labor, the colonists more and more brought in thousands of African slaves. And those who were able to master this system, who could procure the, the, the enslaved laborers, the skilled laborers who might be free or enslaved, the equipment, the technology to produce sugar they got an enormous advantage against all their neighbors who maybe didn't have the capital or didn't have the know-how to master this system. And so very quickly, an elite of, of rich, powerful sugar planters arose, and the value of the land went way up. 
you know, and and really the cost of everything went way up, you know, as would naturally happen in a place like Barbados, where now every square inch of land could be highly valuable in producing sugar. People aren't going to bother producing food. They're going to import food. So the value of everything goes up. The sugar planters, therefore, are able to buy up the the lands and and the labor and the resources on the island. And so Barbados quickly becomes controlled by a small elite, a plantocracy. And furthermore, in a colony like Barbados, just like in Virginia or Plymouth, there was a kind of representative legislative assembly. That was the English custom, that you should allow the local people of the country to control their own affairs and set laws and policies. And so these representative organs, although you can see them as superficially kind of democratic, they were quickly taken over by this sugar planter elite. And you got a society where the laws and the policies were basically designed in order to protect the slave trade, slavery, and sugar production. So this Barbados model came to be mimicked to varying degrees in other places, basically depending on whether or not the terrain was such that you could make a ton of money producing sugar. But that wasn't the case everywhere. Barbados was a fairly flat, low-lying island. You know, it still is, of course, a a flat, low-lying kind of coral and limestone island. And other islands were different. Other islands were largely or entirely mountainous. And the situation, that created a different situation. So in other islands, there could be more marginal land for small holders. And that's the case, for instance, in, in Montserrat, right? You, It was more feasible for s- people of less means to still obtain attractive land on which they could at least support themselves, if not make a fortune. And so it wasn't all bought up and taken over by a plantocracy. And in addition to this, mountainous terrain provided more places to run away, and hence more marronage, and much greater difficulty in controlling a large slave population. It was, in in Barbados, you could, once the whole island was colonized, you could bring in thousands of slaves, and they really had nowhere to go. So as long as you prevented them from rising up and rebelling against you, you knew you had a, a, a labor force under your control. That's not true in the more mountainous islands, where you have to worry, are they simply going to run away? Is there a maroon community in the mountains? And is that maroon community going to attack the plantations? Is that maroon community going to infiltrate and recruit enslaved people? So it was a much more complicated and unstable political situation in the more mountainous islands. So, And you see a sort of range of different possibilities there. And all of this came into play in a very dramatic way in the 1650s when this Barbados model of plantation, sugar plantation colony, was then transferred for the first time to a major island, to one of the greater Antilles, namely Jamaica. So if we talk about Jamaica, Jamaica was the most sparsely populated of the greater Antilles. 
The colonial population that was there in the early 1600s was mainly Portuguese, and it's very complicated. The Spanish crown had granted proprietary rights to a Portuguese family, so many Portuguese colonists went to Jamaica. Many of these Portuguese colonists were actually Jewish, unofficially, uh, but they it was more or less an open secret that there was... Judaism going on in Jamaica. And there also were free and enslaved Africans in Jamaica, particularly around Santiago de la Vega. But it was not a big population. We might be talking about less than 2,000 people on the entire island. And in 1655, the Cromwell government dispatched a, an expeditionary force to carry out a so-called Western design a scheme to invade and seize major Spanish territories. And their target was Hispaniola, that very large, really the, the second largest island in the Caribbean, uh, the, the site of Santo Domingo, the sort of original first base of Spanish colonization. So that was the goal. But there were hurricanes that disrupted that plan. And Santo Domingo was fairly well defended. It was not... It did not look easy to capture. And so this English expeditionary force was diverted and they instead landed and seized Jamaica as a kind of consolation prize. And they probably were able to do so partly because of elements in the colonial population, like Jews and Africans, who saw a potential possible advantage and the possibility of maybe more rights and more powers in their society if it was under English control instead of Spanish. So the English were able to conquer Jamaica pretty easily. And when this happened, some of the African people actually withdrew into the mountains, sort of northward into the mountainous interior of Jamaica, probably just taking advantage of the chaos, the uncertainty of the conquest, they took the opportunity to maroon and flee into the hinterlands. Probably some of them also perceived a disadvantage and perceived that they might be treated worse and more harshly under English rule and have fewer rights than they had under Spanish rule. Maybe they knew some about what life was like in Barbados, for instance. So for whatever reason, some of these Afro-Jamaican people withdrew into the mountains and formed the original core of a Maroon community, which then would persist and actually become quite powerful through the 16 and 1700s. So right away from the beginning, the English conquest of Jamaica presents this enormous opportunity to move the highly profitable Barbados system into this bigger island, but also the dangers and the uncertainties of the different geography of Jamaica. Nonetheless, once the English have laid claim to Jamaica, they put a great deal of money and investment into building up a port, a port that can serve their tremendous merchant fleet and naval fleet. And so Port Royal, on a very fine harbor on the southern coast, not far from Santiago de la Vega, uh, booms and becomes the big English entrepot in the Caribbean, basically comparable to Havana for the Spanish. But most of Port Royal then is destroyed in a tremendous earthquake in 1692, and that's largely why the English withdraw from Port Royal 
to the mainland and set up a new capital, which we still know today as Kingston. So that that eventually replaces Port Royal as the big English center in the Caribbean. And as I said, there is migration from Barbados, which transplants the sugar complex and a lot of the same laws and customs that were known in Barbados to Jamaica. And they obtain thousands and thousands, a sort of constant stream of enslaved Africans. But also beyond Port Royal and Kingston, there also is an increasing wide array of smaller towns and villages all around Jamaica, places on the coast like Montego Bay or uh, Port Maria, Green Harbor, and also even in the interior, in the, the uplands of Jamaica. There's this multiplication of small towns and villages way beyond what existed in the Spanish period, and a lot of them are very multi-ethnic. Uh, there, are, there are English and Irish and Portuguese, uh, Jewish and Gentile, and they're multi-product so along the coast, especially around Kingston, you might have sugar plantations, but then in the interior, there's also coffee and tobacco and cattle ranches. So it becomes more of a, a complex society, although sugar certainly rises to become the number one big export. So that's basically how England rises to become probably the biggest, most important Caribbean power by 1700. But right on their heels are important rivals. And the most important of them, of course, is the French. So the French colonies spring up and grow in a somewhat similar way to England. But France is different from England. France is large and powerful, and there's a great deal of wealth. But there's not as much of a middle class in France. And, you know, in England, there was this kind of close alliance in the 1600s, a growing alliance between the sort of affluent mercantile class, the traditional upper class, and the crown. In France, there isn't as much of that private money to mobilize, and there isn't as much of that disposable population. You don't have the same degree of enclosure movement. You don't have this massive vagrant population the way you do in England. And French colonization is much more haphazard than English. It's unplanned, and it doesn't have as steady backing from the home country. And so in order for French colonies to work and to grow, they need a lot of unusual sources of support, of, of money and labor. So the French colonies are sort of weird hybrid creations. And really French settlement in the Caribbean starts first with sort of quasi-independent French corsairs. You know, these these kind of basically just glorified pirates with kind of tacit approval to some degree from the French crown. And a lot of these French corsairs are Huguenots. They're Protestants who see attacks on the Spanish Empire is very appealing because it's a way to advance French interests against Spain and also a way to sort of strike at the Catholic power of Spain and score sort of small Protestant victories. So these French Huguenot corsairs are moving around, setting up small temporary encampments, raiding, pillaging in the Spanish territories all through the 1500s. And then eventually France 
puts a bit of their weight behind permanent colonization, largely spurred on by the English, you know, not wanting to be left behind by their English rivals. And so French colonization takes place on two separate tracks that happen simultaneously. They begin basically at the same time in different places in the Caribbean. And they both develop through the 1600s, but really separately and independently with whole different strategies and different bases of support. So I'll talk about, firstly, the French colonization in the Lesser Antilles. So this one began at St. Kitts, exactly the same as the English. They just followed two years later after the English had planted a settlement at St. Kitts, the French show up as well. And this sort of course of French colonization in the Lesser Antilles all kind of flows through St. Kitts, using St. Kitts as this central uh, base. And it is done under a royal charter, which the crown grants to a company, like in, like in England, they granted to a company which was called the Compagnie des Îles de l'Amérique, or Company of the American Islands. And so they're basically mimicking the English strategy, even, you know, right down to the name. They create a colony on St. Kitts in 1625. And this colony, of course, has to come to some kind of tentative coexistence with the English. They did not see it as worth their while to just try to attack and overwhelm and destroy the English settlement, but they agree to a sort of tense peace with the English part of the island. And they agree, the English and French colonies agree, not to grow any tobacco, which was a very interesting strategic move. You know, they understood that if they started growing tobacco, it would just create a kind of tobacco race. They would just depress the prices competing with one another, and they would exhaust the soil. So they understood that 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 was a bad idea. So the two agree to a truce and not to grow tobacco. And then the French colony sends expeditions to start to expand into the other islands, most importantly into the larger islands of the Lesser Antilles, and they're able to set up colonies on both Guadeloupe and Martinique in 1635. And Martinique was especially important. Martinique is a bit further south, closer to the Windward Islands, and Martinique grows and imports the sugar complex, such as, you know, the same sort of thing that was happening in Barbados. And Martinique then becomes a base for further colonization further down into the Windward Islands. So they colonized St. Lucia in 1643 and Grenada in 1649. And bit by bit, each of these islands becomes more and more of a productive plantation colony. Although uh, the, the further south you go in the Windward Islands, the more complex and diversified they were, whereas Martinique was kind of a classic sugar colony on the model of Barbados. But still, the main center of French colonization, the headquarters, continued to be St. Kitts. And the French colony on St. Kitts grew very powerful and did so with fairly little investment or control from France. So this starts to become kind of a problem for France because this colony on St. Kitts 
becomes a sort of alternate power base unto itself. And the leaders and rulers of French St. Kitts become quite powerful and hard for France to manage. So the Compagnie des Îles de l'Amérique really struggled through the 1630s and 40s, were not able to make much of a profit, and they had a very hard time recruiting people to go and build up the colony. You know, France didn't, again, did not have this reservoir of prisoners and impoverished laborers to transport across the sea. And in this time of difficulty, the Compagnie brought in a new governor, a very ambitious, visionary individual who ended up becoming really the main mastermind of French expansion in the Caribbean and really made it possible for France to become a Caribbean power. And his name was Philippe de Longvilliers de Poincy, and he was appointed to be the governor of St. Kitts in 1639. And Philippe de Longvilliers de Poincy was a knight hospitaller. So although he was French, he also belonged to this really powerful, self-governing, crusading chivalric order with its roots in the 12th century crusades. Technically, they were knights of St. John, but they were commonly called knights hospitaller because they had once run the Pilgrim's Hospital at Jerusalem. But after withdrawing from the Holy Land, they were given sovereignty over the islands of Malta in the Mediterranean. And so by this time, they were commonly called the Knights of Malta. So all these things are technically the same thing. Knights Hospitaller, Knights of Malta. And they were crusaders. And in many ways, they were the order that had taken up the mantle of the Templars after the Templars were destroyed. Their main role on Malta was defending the Mediterranean and trying to block uh, Turkish expansion into the Western Mediterranean. So Malta was this sort of crucial uh, strategic point for the connection, the passageway between the Eastern and Western Mediterranean. So they were fairly often able to successfully fight off the Ottoman Turks, but their real hope was to continue the crusading quest and to find some way to gather up enough forces, enough men, enough money to relaunch the crusades eastward to Jerusalem. And the Knights Hospitaller were very closely tied to the French aristocracy. Many of them were involved in various ways in New France, in the French colonies in North America. Uh, Poincy himself served for a time as the commander of a fortress in Acadia, the French colony up in what's now Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. He went to St. Kitts in 1639 to take up the governorship, and he really threw his efforts with a great passion into expanding the colony there. And in addition to sponsoring the colonization in Martinique and Guadeloupe, he also sent expeditionary forces to capture islands that had already been inhabited, that were in some way inhabited by indigenous people or Spanish or other Europeans. And they took control of St. Martin and St. Bart's in the Leeward Islands in 1648 and St. Croix in 1650. So that's why all those islands have French names. Some of these conquests were very unstable, especially St. Croix in the Virgin Islands was sort of seized back and forth by multiple different parties and eventually was lost to Denmark. 
But the others remained. Uh, the French colonies on St. Martin and St. Bart's continued and became fairly successful. So as of the 1640s, when these conquests are happening, the Compagnie still technically owns St. Kitts. It's their proprietary colony. But really, in fact, it was actually run like a little kingdom by Poincy himself. And Poincy funneled money and personnel, almost all of them French, from the Knights Hospitaller into St. Kitts and the other islands and made them into really effectively like an unofficial fiefdom of the Knights, like Malta was. He ignored and sidelined the Jesuits, who were traditionally powerful in the French Empire. And he traded freely and openly with Protestants, including French Huguenots and the Dutch and the English, which displeased both the Jesuits and the French crown, but he felt entitled to set that policy. He encouraged the entrenchment of slavery in the islands, and he controversially refused to free the children of baptized Christian slaves. So that had been the custom in many colonies, that if, a, if an African slave took baptism and was a Christian, then their children should be free. But uh, Poincy refused to accept that, and he saw a sort of permanent slave caste as important to the success of the colonies. And he doled out very harsh justice and basically ruled with an iron fist, almost like a little a little despot or a little king in these faraway islands. So all of this caused a lot of concern and consternation back in Europe. And the Compagnie sent a replacement governor named Toisy to take the governorship from Poincy in 1649. But Poincy initially refused to allow him to land. And then when he did uh, land on an island, Poincy sent a force to capture him and send him back to France as a prisoner. So in effect, this was a kind of treason. You know, you could argue about the, the legalities, but more or less Poincy was unofficially declaring independence, that he was in control of these islands and refused to allow anyone to challenge him. So by 1650, the Compagnie was totally exasperated. They were not extracting any profit from the islands. In fact, they hadn't even yet managed uh, to pay off the, the debts or the expenses they had incurred. And they were ready to give them up. And when this was happening, meanwhile in France the government was under the control of Cardinal Mazarin, and Mazarin was totally distracted with affairs in Europe. And this was an important pattern that would happen too in the French Empire, is that these colonies really had to improvise and scrounge for whatever resources they could get, because France was more entrenched and distracted with affairs on the European continent than England was. So Mazarin sort of doesn't care, and he just takes back the company's rights to these islands and starts to break them up and sell them off to buyers. So hence, private buyers bought up the, the rights to Martinique and Guadeloupe and other wind, uh, windward islands. But Poincy was able to use his influence with the Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller named Lascaris and persuaded him to buy up the rights to all of the leeward islands. So St. Kitts, as well as St. Bart's, St. Martin, and wherever else the French might land, 
the uh, the Knights of Malta bought those rights. And the Knights apparently saw this project as an investment in Christianization of the Americas, right? This was the sort of grand dream of of evangelizing the indigenous people of the Americas, which you could see as kind of a, an extension or an adjunct to the crusading mission. And also probably they were persuaded to see these islands as a possible investment to make money to then funnel back into the crusading quest and this dream of eventually taking Jerusalem again. So after 1650, the proprietors of the French islands in the Leeward Islands were technically the Knights Hospitaller, but the sovereign was still technically the King of France. So it was again this sort of odd uh, public-private arrangement between the proprietors and the crown. But really everyone knew that the person in control, the the law in these islands was Poincy. So the Knights Hospitaller sent representatives to St. Kitts to try to oversee and monitor Poincy's activities and manage help manage the colonies and make sure that they would be to the advantage of the Knights of Malta. But Poincy always managed to sideline them and isolate them and keep total control over the colonies for himself. And particularly on St. Kitts, Poincy built fortresses, a system of roads, churches, and even a hospital, which I guess is fitting for the Knights Hospitaller. And he built a grand Baroque palace and gardens for himself called the Chateau de la Montagne, or Castle of the Mountain. And he reportedly led a very lavish courtly life and tried to bring art and entertainment into the island. He also was a horticulturalist and a naturalist, and he cataloged many New World species, uh, including, for instance, the Poinciana, which is named after him, after Poincy. So Poincy himself finally died in 1660, and he was replaced by a new governor from the Knights Hospitaller named Charles de Salle, and Salle ruled until 1666. And at that point, the Knights Hospitaller, just like the company before them, see that they're not making any money and that this is just too difficult and expensive a project to be worth it any longer. They still owe debts just on the cost of purchasing the islands. And so the new economic finance minister for King Louis XIV, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, was able to persuade the knights to sell the colonies to another company. And this transition of power was a weak moment, a moment of kind of uncertainty and administrative disorder as this kind of little kingdom that had been created by Poincy is breaking down. And so the English saw an opportunity and fighting broke out between the English and French colonies on St. Kitts. Saul himself uh, was killed, but the French colony survived. So the, the, the French foothold in St. Kitts did remain and lasted for many years thereafter. 
As for the other islands in St. Croix, the French colonists on St. Croix actually rebelled against the Knights Hospitaller and their sort of authoritarian regime in 1657. But the rebellion was defeated and the French held on to that colony. But as I said, it was later eventually captured by the Danes. Uh, St. Parts lasted for several years until it suffered a Carib attack and it was abandoned for several years. But Poincy had it recolonized and it continued to grow and became a thriving colony later in the 1600s. And in St. Martin, the island was peaceably divided between rival colonies, much like St. Kitts was peaceably divided between the French and the English. St. Martin was divided between a French colony in the northern part of the island coexisting with a Dutch colony in the south, and both of those colonies continued uh, to grow and thrive and to support a plantation economy. Uh, and it happens that today, St. Martin is the smallest island in the world that is divided between two sovereign nations. It is still French territory in the north and Dutch in the south. And all of these uh, smaller colonies in the leewards then continue to serve as way stations, supply stations, communication stations for the big, seriously growing plantation economies in Martinique and Guadeloupe. Okay, so that gives you a picture of the French colonization in the Lesser Antilles. Well, meanwhile, something very different was happening at the same time in the Greater Antilles. French colonization there started really independently by buccaneers, by these sort of quasi-legal tolerated pirates who flourished with tacit state approval as long as they preyed on the Spanish. And in 1625, a group of mostly French buccaneers landed and occupied the island of Tortuga, which is a sort of long, narrow, hilly island just off the northwestern coast of Hispaniola, that major, large island that the English had wanted and failed to conquer back, or that, that they would try and fail to conquer in the 1650s. So these buccaneers create a sort of illegal shadow colony as a base mainly to raid and explore through the Spanish Antilles. And this colony was destroyed not long after and then reoccupied again in 1630 and was kind of informally divided into English and French sections as more and more English buccaneers start to show up hoping to live with some kind of approval or sponsorship of the English crown. And the English also start to bring in slaves. And so there starts to be a bit of an enslaved African population, but this was then halted in 1633 because it introduced an element of instability, the possibility of resistance or rebellion by slaves. So much like the English and French in St. Kitts agreed not to grow tobacco, in 1633, the English and French buccaneers in Tortuga agree not to bring in any more slaves. Shortly after that, the Dutch also show up, and Tortuga really ends up becoming this kind of unpredictable, chaotic, international pirate haven or entrepot. And... It suffered more repeated Spanish attacks, but 
because the population was so heavily piratical, they had the ability to just kind of flee and then come back. And they it sort of was like a, a wasp's nest that the Spanish were never able to finally eliminate. In 1640, the French and Dutch colonists agree to start fortifying the island, and from that point onwards, they're able to hold it permanently. After 1655, the English try to formally extend their authority over the island, and they appoint a governor. So the, the, the governors, the new English governors in Jamaica appoint a sort of deputy governor to try to lay claim to Tortuga. But then the French do so too, right? Again, the French don't want to be left behind by the English, and there's political squabbling. And more or less, these different imperial authorities kind of just neutralize one another. And what you end up with is a de facto regime being organized by these kind of multi-ethnic, multinational pirates among themselves. And they form a, a sort of independent company called the Brethren of the Coast. And that really, in effect, becomes the actual ruling government of the island. So French explorers, colonizers, pirates use Tortuga as a base to supply and protect footholds that they plant on Hispaniola. So they see that there are vast areas, especially on the western side of Hispaniola, that the Spanish are not defending. And Tortuga forms a base then to start to little by little plant French settlements on the island. The town of Cap Francois, or later called Cap Francais, was founded on the northern end of Hispaniola in 1670. And this town ends up later becoming really the big major French town in the West Indies, much like Kingston was for the English. And the capital, the French, as I said, were trying to formally lay claim to Tortuga and increasingly to all of Hispaniola. And they formally relocate their capital from Tortuga to a new town called Port de Pay on the mainland of Hispaniola in 1676. So in a way, the sort of formal open French colonization hives off from what was still mainly a buccaneer base. And in the 1680s, there were a series of agreements made back in Europe between the European powers, where more and more the, the governments in Europe agree that they should put a stop to this piracy and buccaneering, that it was too destabilizing and it was lawless and there was a danger that it would turn against their own colonies and territories. So they agreed to start suppressing uh, this piracy. And as part of the agreement, France is formally recognized as the overlords of Tortuga. It becomes formally French territory. And it's the, the various... Uh, maritime powers start to try to suppress this this pirate colony. And in 1697, the Treaty of Ryswijk between France and Spain officially recognizes French control, not just of Tortuga, but of the entire western coast of Hispaniola. So this whole area that the French have been increasingly taking over, they now get formal open recognition of French sovereignty over that whole western end of Hispaniola. And the French name it Saint-Domingue. So 
basically just, you know, the French form of the Spanish name Santo Domingo. And after about 1700, this sort of first age of piracy that was so common in the Caribbean ends. And more and more, there's a greater focus all throughout the greater Antilles. There's a greater focus on actual large-scale colonization and exploitation of these gains in the greater Antilles, which for England mainly means Jamaica and for France, Saint-Domingue. And those grow to become the big uh, wealthy colonies in the Caribbean after 1700. So I've been mentioning all along the way here another significant player in the picture, which is the Dutch. So I'll talk a little bit about the Dutch and how their colonies figure in, and also, lastly, about a couple of really minor players that also show up in the Caribbean. But as for the Dutch, they colonize mainly under the Dutch West India Company, so the same sort of uh, state-backed private monopoly company, the same one that is controlling the New Netherlands in North America, they also start early attempts at colonization in the Caribbean. And the Dutch have a very good navy, much like the English, with very experienced, savvy mariners and naval fighters. And so the Dutch are able more often to actually attack and seize existing colonies. Right. More so, where, whereas you know the English and the French are mainly focused on finding uninhabited territories, the Dutch can be more aggressive in seizing what they want, even from the Spanish. And initially, in the early 1600s, the Dutch closely align with the English against the Spanish. They see the English as Protestant allies, and they provide a lot of material support, logistical support to those early English colonies, their major suppliers. But this starts to shift later, and increasingly the Dutch turn against the English and really try to create their own separate colonial empire apart from the English. So how do they start colonizing? Well, it begins in the Leeward Islands, just like the French and the English started with St. Kitts. The Dutch start in the smaller Leeward Islands, first at St. Martin in 1631, where they build a serious fortress, Fort Amsterdam, then followed by St. Eustatius in 1636 and Seba in 1640. So these are all fairly small islands. Then they also cross down to the southern side of the Caribbean, closer to the mainland of South America. Again, which they probably were emboldened to do because they had a very good navy. And they conquer and colonize Curaçao in 1634. And that involved expelling an existing Spanish and indigenous population. So something that other colonizers had not done. And they also colonize Aruba and Bonaire in 1636. And again, they fortify Bonaire with a very serious, imposing fortress called Fort Orange. So the Dutch are really laying significant military foundations in the Caribbean, even though they're a smaller country with fewer people. They also briefly capture and hold Anguilla, Tobago, St. Croix, and Tortola at different times in the 1600s, but they don't hold on to any of them. But nonetheless, they do hold on permanently to six major islands. The one I, I, that I mentioned, the St. Martin, St. Eustatius, and Seba, 
in the Leeward Islands and Curaçao, Aruba, and Bonaire on the southern side of the Caribbean. And these islands become major centers of plantation agriculture and also of trade. And particularly St. Eustatius really becomes the main international mercantile entrepot of the whole Caribbean, overshadowing even Port Royal. And the Dutch continue to be the main intermediaries of trade around the Americas and Europe and Africa. So at this point, by the mid-1600s, the the Dutch are really rising to become a serious threatening rival. And this is when the English more and more turn against them and try to break the Dutch trade monopolies. And you get a series of Anglo-Dutch wars repeatedly through the 1650s, 60s, 70s. But the Dutch, although they have fewer people and less resources than England, nonetheless, they are able to hold their own. And who are the more minor players? Well, I've, I mentioned the Danish. Denmark colonized St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands beginning in 1668, largely as a kind of, you know, unofficial ragtag operation. But then control of this mission was taken up by the Danish West India and Guinea Company, which mainly is focused on the slave trade from Africa, but it does also take up control of the colony on St. Thomas in 1671 and is able to grow it and keep it afloat for centuries. So the Virgin Islands become long-term Danish territories. And then lastly, a very minor but very interesting player that comes onto the scene is Courland. So there are, in addition to Dutch, French, English, and Spanish colonizers, there are also Latvians, or, or Kuronian, as they would have been called at the time. So the Duchy of Courland is basically the western part of what is present-day Latvia, and it's the smallest country that was ever involved in European colonization abroad. The Duchy of Courland was technically just a fiefdom within the larger kingdom of Poland-Lithuania, but it was really effectively an autonomous, quasi-independent state unto itself. And the population was a mixture of Baltic people and Germans, and it had been founded by German crusading knights from orders like the Teutonic Order. So it had, just like the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights of Malta, Courland had a, a crusading route. They were a maritime country on the Baltic, and they had an excellent merchant fleet based at the towns of Vindau and Libau on the Baltic. They got involved in colonization under a ruler named Duke Jacob, who ruled for a long time from 1642 to 82. And they were able to found a significant colony on the island of Tobago in the Windward Islands called New Courland. And it was first created in 1637, but then was destroyed when it was blockaded by the Spanish. But they repeatedly sent more expeditionary forces of colonists and merchants and soldiers to refound the colony repeatedly. So it was it was founded and destroyed or evacuated many times through the 1600s. 
their main enemies included the Spanish, the Caribs, and the Dutch. So remember, this is down close to South America. So those were areas where the Spanish and the Caribs were still real threats, and also the Dutch, because the Dutch had the naval power, and they wanted to dominate that coast of South America. So they were repeatedly attacked, and the colonists several times fled to other colonies like Tortuga or Jamaica. And Corland made an alliance with England as part of their strategy of trying to get involved in colonization, which then at least gave people a place to flee. They could go to the nearest English colony if they had to flee from Tobago. But in 1654, Courland sent a large expedition with families, several families, including women and arms. And for a brief time, the colony really succeeded and thrived. They built a large Lutheran church, and they exported all kinds of tropical crops and other products like tortoise shells and feathers. But it was destroyed again by the Dutch in 1659. After the Duchy of Courland and the Netherlands made peace, it was resettled again. And there were final small attempts to create new colonies in 1680 and 1686. But this was finally given up and Tobago was ceded in 1690. And the remaining stragglers simply left and migrated over to English and Dutch colonies or joined the buccaneers and pirates. So this episode with Courland, you know, it's very strange and it was not the largest or most important colony at all. But I think it's an illustration of how strange and unpredictable this whole process was and really how, in a sense, kind of crazy and just delusionally ambitious people had to be to even try to take on this dangerous, bizarre project of creating colonies in the Caribbean and how remarkable it is that at least some of them in places like Barbados or Martinique or Tortuga managed to succeed in one way or another and persist. And it's those sort of weird, risky, sometimes successful, sometimes failed projects that then laid the foundation for Caribbean society in the 1700s. So to sort of take stock, by 1700, by the time the French are in control of Saint-Domingue, the major players now in the Caribbean are England, France, and the Netherlands. Right? Denmark does have a small foothold. Courland has been wiped off the map. But the, the real uh, serious powers now are England, France, and the Netherlands. There's a sort of complex balance of power among them. The Netherlands comparatively is more mercantile. Their colonies are more mercantile, whereas the English and French colonies are more plantation-based, and especially Saint-Domingue and Jamaica are the big growing plantation colonies. And all of these European powers are importing slaves. The slave trade is booming. It's becoming the main source of labor in the West Indies. And it seems that by 1700, if we can estimate how many people were forcibly moved into these colonies in the 1600s. And by 1700, the English have imported about 264,000 people, the French 156,000, and the Dutch 40,000. So these are small numbers compared to what would happen later 
after 1700 when the slave trade reaches its height. You know, we're talking about millions of people. But they're tremendous when you consider that most of those islands were completely unpopulated as of 1600. And that we're talking about just a a massive flood of human beings compared to what had been there previously. And it's really the slave trade that becomes, you could say, the, the lifeblood, literally and figuratively, of these plantation societies. Slavery at this point was still very ambiguous. It was not clear and often not codified in law exactly who was a slave and what that meant. What powers did slave owners have? Did enslaved people have any rights? Could they become free? Under what conditions? What did that mean? What did free African people, what role could they play in society? All of this was fluid and unclear. And there were different laws and customs in different territories, We can't get down into all the weeds and details of all the changing laws in each of these islands. But loosely speaking, broadly speaking, the French had some minimal protections for the life or well-being of enslaved people. A code noir or black code was promulgated, which at least said some things like enslaved people should have the ability to possess money, engage in trade, they should be able to marry and not have their marriages broken up. It encouraged slave owners to have their slaves baptized so that all would become part of the Catholic Church. So there was at least a sort of baseline recognition of some minimal humanity and minimal rights for even for enslaved people. Uh, But, you know, in practice, that didn't mean that they were not constantly brutalized and their lives were not controlled by their masters. Uh, The Catholics did go further in Christianizing enslaved people and free people of color as compared to Protestants. And the Protestant colonists in English and Dutch colonies tended to avoid Christianization or actively discourage it as a danger and a threat to the domination and control of the enslaved population. So there was a very different attitude there. Also, when it comes to miscegenation, or you know, which is kind of the crude term for intermarriage or intermixture of populations, that was treated very differently as well. In the French Empire, it was tolerated, and sometimes the church would even somewhat encourage it. Whereas it was either heavily discouraged or illegal in the Protestant colonies. And by 1700, colonies like Barbados were specifically uh, codifying in law that blacks and whites could not marry. So all in all, this created a very complicated landscape where it was unclear to what degree this rising plantocracy would be able to control events. Would they be able to control their own enslaved workers? Would they be able to control poorer uh, European or Indian residents of the colonies? Would they be able to defend their holdings and territories against the Maroon societies against rebellion and against each other, against attack and instigation from rival European powers. So it was 
a time of increasing prosperity and success, but also a lot of uncertainty and potential instability. And if I get a chance later, I'll talk about how all of that then came to a head in the 1700s, which was the the real heyday of the sugar plantation complex and the slave trade. So thank you so much uh, for listening. If you can support and help keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter. You'll have access to my patron-only lectures at any level, even if it's just a dollar. And also, uh, I encourage you to check out the first posting of the new podcast, God Save America, which hopefully is particularly helpful if you are confused about religion in America and want a clearer picture of what the religious landscape of America is and what all these different religious groups are. So thank you again so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. Yo, I did you were in a you were. I you in a